Welcome to The Mix with Matt and Dan. Today, I have a very special guest, my father, Rusty Bruchet. Say hi. Hello, Matt. How are you doing today? Good, good, good. I'm glad you're here. Uh, this is something we've been planning for a long time, and I'm really yep. excited that we are uh, actually getting to make this recording, the first of what I hope to be many. Um, one of the things we hope to share today is you. Right. One of the things that you've done in your life is actually live an incredibly interesting life with <laughs> lots of different uh, famous people around you, a lot of really cool technology that you were able to be passionate about your entire career. That's right. And what I'm most importantly going to focus on during our time together uh, is really the business side of this. Right. right? The, mar uh, the people who listen to the mix, the marketing mix, they care about business. We care about entrepreneurism. I think of you as two things. I think of you as a pure entrepreneur, and I think of you as a product guy. Right. Right? You invented how many products over your career? Uh, well, the company I invented maybe, I don't know, um, 20, 30, 40, 50, I guess. Yeah, and you had successes and you had failures, yes. right? And right. your successes were worldwide. Right, that's right? right. And some of your products that you built in, what, the 70s and 80s are still being used in the market today? Yeah, that's right. right. Particularly the VL5, which is a, a automated stage light that we developed that's still being used in television and in, in, uh, in Los Angeles. Right. And just to give um, a little bit of a summary, we're going to dive into all of these details and more. Uh, Rusty Bruchet um, was the founder of Shoko right. and the founder of Very Light. Uh, Shoko was the one of the first touring sound companies in the 70s yes. and the 80s. I was uh, actually co-founder with two other people. Co-founder, yeah. yeah, we'll get that right, and we'll make sure we mention yeah. their names. Your co-founders were? Uh, Jack Calmes and Jack Maxson. Right, and so at the time, um, you guys were building uh, sound systems in your garage. That's right, and for the touring, the rock and roll touring market. Right, and so you ended up touring personally. You were, as advertised, you were the sound guy for Led Zeppelin. That's right. I um, mixed all of Led Zeppelin's shows from uh, 1971 until 1980. Okay, and then... Uh, Jack Maxson was on tour with Three Dog Night? or Maxson was on tour with Three Dog Night. He also did uh, Paul McCartney's 1976 Wings tour. Yeah, he also did uh, the Bee Gees tour in 1980. Yeah, he mixed the Rolling Stones, several tours of the Rolling Stones in the yeah. 70s. Yeah. Uh, and James Taylor. He okay. was an so, excellent mixer. So some people we've heard about. It, yeah, it's, you know, you're, exactly. the, the viewers and the listeners here, they've heard these these names. Yes. Um, the thing that I find the most interesting, and you know, there's probably people who care about what happened backstage. That's not that interesting to me. There's probably some things that happened with the bands and all of those little historical notes. Right. Um, unfortunately for the listeners, if you if they're listening for salacious stories that happened <laughs> during those times, it's not going to happen. Right? right. The things that we're going to focus on is how does a group of guys who are building stuff in a garage in Dallas, Texas. In 1969, Nine, eight, yep. you know, somewhere around there, um, start a company that goes worldwide and innovates some of the most profound innovations in that space uh, that the really that really haven't been innovated past very much. That's right. And how did it all happen? It's, it's really being at the right place at the right time is probably the simplest way to say it. Right. Um, we uh, we were all. Um, involved in music and, uh, and sound, and the two sort of came together uh, really with Woodstock in okay. 1969. Yeah, but when I think of uh, you guys being, you know, interested in sound, there's a lot of people who are interested in sound. Right. Right? I mean, there's a, if there's more of anything in the world, there's probably more sound guys yeah. than there is enough sound to go around. <laughs> yeah. So why you? Well, um, I think it's because I actually built sound systems from an early age. When I, uh, I was born in 1945, and I grew up in Dallas. My dad was, uh, and mother were both, both born in Dallas, but my father was in the Army Air Force in, uh, in the World War II, and uh, I was born in, on an Army Air Force hospital in Biloxi, Mississippi, in January 1st, 1945. And then uh, we moved to uh, back to Dallas very shortly after I was born. So I was basically raised in Dallas and consider myself a, a Dallasite. 
And I was raised in the 50s, so, you know, when I was five years old, it was 1950, and when I was 15 years old, it was 1960. So I lived the Ozzie and Harriet lifestyle, and my father worked for the phone, Dallas, uh, for AT&T, he was an executive, and uh, we just lived that 1950s life that you see on television with, you know, Chevrolets yeah, and pink Cadillacs and stuff. The only way that I can relate to that is... I mean, I understand it from the movies and the TV shows and all of that kind of differentiation. In my world, my generation specifically was like we were had an analog childhood and a yeah. digital adulthood. Yeah. Right? So we kind of saw all of those transitions. And I think that that's probably a parallel to kind of the dichotomy of what you went through. Well, except that we were still very much analog. You know, everything was right. vacuum tubes and... Uh, there was the, the idea of something digital didn't exist well until probably in the 90s, you know. So I was, you know, way along before that digital revolution yeah. so, hit. So tell me more about how you got your first interaction with music. Well, I always liked uh, music. I liked rock and roll music. And um, when I was uh, 15 years old in 1960, I met a friend named Charlie Grable who... Uh, was a guitar player. He'd, he'd, he had a Fender Stratocaster guitar, and um, I was just totally uh, drawn to the whole idea of playing guitar. And so um, he was forming a band, and he said, well, we need a bass player, so I'll teach you how to play bass. So I said, okay. Is that how music was kind of passed around? Yeah. Or is that weird? Like, now you would just go to an instructor. Like, you would... Yeah, well, there wasn't any, you know, wasn't any way to do it. No you just, had to, you just no, had to pick it up and learn, you know. There was no instructor economy. No, there wasn't. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, uh, I found a used uh, Fender Precision Bass and a Fender Bassman Amplifier. A friend or someone had one around, and they were offering it for sale for $400. So I went and asked my father if he would loan me or if he would guarantee a loan for four hundred dollars, so I could buy this—that's a lot of base—and it was a huge amount of money. Yeah, and shockingly, he agreed. When uh, I had no—I didn't know how to play it or anything. I—I I just said, "Well, I just want to do it, and I really think I—I I can do this." So he let me do it. So I bought it, and uh, Charles Grable taught me the basic, got me going with a few basic runs and stuff. And when I when I think about to start playing. Yeah, when I think about the stories you've told me in the past, I know that this is a big moment because of how frugal your father was. That's true. Dad was, he, was, uh, he wasn't cheap. He was just frugal. He just made every penny count, and he wasn't one to spend money on anything frivolous. You know, we didn't have a radio in the car until, you know, about, you know for years because he didn't want to pay the extra money for a radio. But uh, he... For some reason, he let me do it, and uh, it really changed my life. I would say it's probably one of the most pivotal moments in my whole life because it got me going towards being a musician and playing rock and roll music. And uh, the very first song we learned, we, had, we found a drummer and we found another guitar player, so we had this four-man group. We called ourselves the DeVilles. And... Uh, we started with uh, Walk, Don't Run by The Ventures. That was the first song we ever learned. And uh, we used to play it over and over again. And then we kind of branched out into the music of the day, Buddy Holly songs and all of the surfer songs of the day. And we started actually getting gigs and playing. I started playing weekend gigs fairly early on and earning money. So we would earn you know, anywhere from $50 to $100 a piece playing two nights on the weekends. Yeah. And that was a lot of money back then. So, so I, I was able to pay for everything I wanted just out of my earnings from playing music. So for whatever reason, genetic, timing, life, like whatever the world, the way the world spends, you've always been able to monetize the music business. Yeah, for some reason we we uh I mean a lot we, of people we were able struggle to do with it. that, right? Yeah. Like why do you think you were able to do that? Well, I think we uh had a we had a vision for wanting to play, and um, we really wanted to earn the money. It was a, it was a great way to to uh, to pay our way through high school. I mean, I was able to buy my first car with my earnings from the band. 
And then when I got to college, I was able to pay my way through school, playing on the weekends. Because as we got bigger, bigger bands and better bands, we got paid more money. So we were up where we were earning maybe two or three or four hundred dollars a piece on a weekend. And uh, so that it made uh, it made for a lot, and it also taught me uh, early on about keeping up with the money part of it because I kept all the books and kept track of all the expenses and issued the paychecks to the band members and tracked all the joint expenses and you know allocated each man's share to his and stuff yeah. and I kept all those ledgers in fact I've still got some of them Were you like an inherently like responsible kid or something <clears throat> I was responsible and I always had I was always good with numbers and mm -hmm. uh, it always drove me crazy um well, that's actually, I'll tell you how I got into that doing the money is that one of the other guys in the group was more of an accountant type. But, um, and so he, didn't, he started out keeping the books. And we found out after a while that he wasn't keeping the books. He was just taking all the receipts and putting them in a drawer. And so there wasn't any record keeping going on. Yeah, and what I know about you is that... That, that just was, drove me absolutely that not, berserk. Yeah. That was not going to worry. There was a second uh, yeah. influx in your life, right? That's right. So I, I took over the books <laughs> right. and uh, straightened all that out and kept up with it. And I also uh, loved sound. And I had I started out with a... Put together kind of a crude uh, home, home system. It wasn't stereo. When I first started... It was mono because our stereo hadn't been invented yet. And it was a, a very simple system, but it had a turntable and an amplifier and a preamp and, a, and one speaker. And uh, that's what I would use to learn music. Whenever we wanted to learn a song, we would buy the record. There was record stores. Down on Lover's Lane, there was a record store and had all these listening rooms in it and this huge collection of records. And so we would go down there and just hang out in this record store and we would go in those listening rooms and we would listen to all these different records. And then if we liked one, we would buy it and take it home and then I would play it on this system I had and I would teach myself the bass line. And uh, I remember Freddie King had an album called Hideaway. He was a blues guitarist that grew up in Dallas and we uh, knew him fairly well and uh, actually played shows with him on occasion. And he had an album called Hideaway, which was all instrumental songs. Hideaway was one of the songs, and there was a bunch of others. And I learned all those songs, and I played that album hundreds and hundreds of times. I played it so many times, I literally wore the grooves off the album. It was right. totally slick when I was done with it. And uh, it was one of those albums that most, uh, every guitar player of my generation that you talk to, I'm sure, will tell you that Freddie King's Hideaway album was one of the cornerstones of their career that they learned how to play all those songs, and that was part of their yeah. teaching moments, you know? Yeah, so you, you you kind of picked up the bass, not because, you know, if it had been, what if the guy had said, you know, I really need somebody to play the oboe? Yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> you know, I mean, you would have gone toward the oboe, right? I would have if, if, if the rock and roll players of the time had been playing the oboe. Right, I wouldn't, right, I yeah. wouldn't have done it little, if there wasn't any Freddie King out there. Right, you know? a little image, right? A little, uh, yeah. lot of, uh, yeah. uh, you know, kind of the, that's actually yeah. a good sociological thing, right? Yeah. Because, like, does the environment create the person or does the person yeah. create the environment? And clearly there's some influence from society here. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, uh, I started, um, you know, once you have a band, and each band member in rock and roll parlance I'm talking about here is that once you have the bass player and a couple of guitar players and a drummer, then you have to have singers, you know, and typically these people in the band would sing. And if you have to sing, you need a sound system because they're, you've got an amplification for everybody else other than the drummer, but you don't have amplification for your vocals. So we had to build a a sound system so I started what do you mean you had to build the sound system like well there wasn't any way to, there was nothing on there was no place to go to get one you had to you had to make it yourself and but I mean like what does that mean like putting well, paper on like like could you buy parts like you can buy like Arduino parts today or was it like yeah you could buy speakers the actual speakers themselves okay and then you'd have to uh, you'd have to build a cabinet 
But how would you know, wood? like, wattages and voltage and... Well, you just, uh, we wanted it loud, so we would buy the, the maximum that was available. Yeah. And at that time, 100 watts was about it as that far as... And would you like stack them and try and get the same well, we, signal? Well, we we would uh, we built a cabinet that had two 15-inch speakers in it. Yeah. And then we would power it up with a uh, an amplifier that either a, a high fidelity amp we would buy or something like that. And a uh, there was a company in that era called Altec Lansing, and they were the classic uh, sound uh, reinforcement company of the day that sold equipment into arenas and places for voice or you know for basketball games and stuff like that not music just the spoken word and so Altec Lansing had mixers microphone mixers and um, and they had speakers and stuff but we we would use their mixers but we would buy sure microphones and then we would build our own cabinets and we'd find our own power amplifiers Right. And I mean, was this a collaboration thing? Was this something that everybody was kind of taking part in or were you just the guy that just had all the stuff? Um, I was pretty much, as far as our band went, I was the guy because I just had the interest and, and I had they... sort of a technical bent and I just I had a, a real desire to do it. So I just started doing it. Right. And so you kept all this at your house and yeah. Nanya, uh, my yeah. grandmother, your mother, yeah. never complained about all no, the stuff? No, she, she never really did. And I mean, my, my room was packed full of wires and speakers and guitars and all that stuff. And I just, I just did it in there. And I, I worked in, in the garage and would build stuff in, so out there. So you were stringing all these things together, building yeah. the thing that you wanted, yeah. and then kind of immediately putting that into market, right? Because yeah. you had a place to go play it. And, yeah. then you, and then you were getting feedback from the audience, like, oh, that sounded mm -hmm. better than all these other people. Because you'd invented this thing that nobody else kind of had? Well, I mean, at the, in, the t in the day, I mean, other bands would have some sort of sound system because you had to have it for vocals. But uh, I always felt we had, you know, probably the best one around. And as time progressed, we, uh, Altec Lansing did make a speaker called the Voice of the Theater, which was a, a speaker that was originally um, designed for uh, motion picture theaters. And it had, in addition to a 15-inch speaker, it had a horn, a compression horn um, for the high frequencies. And that was the first time we'd ever uh, used that. And that was a big improvement because um, a 15-inch speaker is not going to be good reproducing their high frequencies uh, like a horn does. A horn is, is designed to reproduce those frequencies because it's going to have a small compression driver and it's got the you know, uh, aluminum horn that the driver goes on and it couples the uh, sound from the driver to the air. Yeah. So what I find interesting though is that you were equally playing music and practicing music and then right. you had that kind of thing going. Right. And then you also had this kind of technical infrastructure where you were really building to meet the need. Right. And then you were actually going out and getting the support of whether that's indifference or whether that's a whole thousand people cheering for you, you had people who were willing to pay you money in order to go out there right. and perform. That's right. And we, we played uh, fraternity parties and uh, society parties. I mean, this is like the three corners of the triangle of the music industry as I know it, right? Yeah. There's like the practice economy, right, where you yeah. could have become the world's best teacher. You could go out and become the technical economy, which is kind of what you did. And then there's the talent economy. Right. Were you, why... Did you not, did you, were you guys writing songs or did you never have the courage to do that or did they just not click? You know, we, um, yeah, the band that I was in kind of morphed into two or three different um, groups of people. Uh, through high school, we kept the same band together. And then when uh, we graduated from high school, um, some, half the guys left and went off to college outside of Dallas. So we ended up having to, start uh, kind of recruiting other people. So in the 60s, uh, the band members were a bit different. That's where I met a, a guy named Jack Calmes, who was a guitar player. And that's when I, I built a larger sound system using the Altec A7 speakers. And for power amplifiers, I used a tube amplifier made, it was called a Dynakit. It was a 60 watt amplifier that came in kit form and you put it together and 
So I'm like out of like the back of, of the magazine, they were like, yeah. we have this thing, and then yeah. you would order it. And, and then I coupled that with the with the Altec mixers, the six channel Altec. So, but mixers. was your system like a Frankenstein system because you'd been building this and been building this and no, I, I would say it got more refined. It became less of a Frankenstein system and became more refined. But it was you know picking parts, the best parts I could find from different areas. There was no single vendor to go to to get everything. You had to kind of put it together yourself. So you were 15 years old. You got your first bass guitar. Yeah. Right? And then by the time you were 15 to what, 17, 18, yeah. you're going around and developing. You got a lot of time as a kid. You're hanging out at the record store. Yeah. You're playing music. You had yeah. a pretty great life at yeah. this time, right? Pretty solid. It was solid. We were, we, uh, we were it was a great time. Middle class America, yeah. kind of all of this stuff that you would think. And it was before the '60s, so yeah, it didn't. You know, the '60s was the time of the big upheaval yeah. with the Vietnam War and all the, all that. But the '50s, I would say, through the early '60s, uh, was pretty much uh, the ideal, so you didn't idealistic have any... time because everybody that come back from World War II was back to work and happy to be alive, happy to have survived, and yeah. it was just a period where everybody was really focused on. On family and just getting and so back that, to there, a, a normal life. And so you said a lot of guys went to college, and they they went to college out of state, and you yeah. went to SMU. Yeah, I went to SMU. Right. And so why did you choose SMU? I went to SMU because I didn't want to stop playing in the band. Really? Yeah. So it was that strong of a force in your yeah, life that it was. Yeah. And you were making money, so like I was why making would... money, and I I just didn't want to give it up. And so I uh, and I wanted to go to engineering school. SMU had a, an engineering school, a good engineering school. So I went there. Yeah, and why engineering? Was it because you were actually engineering? Like a lot of people, especially even me in my life, I was like, how do I know what I want to do? Because I didn't necessarily have a signal or that type of clarity. Yeah. Um, well, I, I always liked mechanical things. So when I was in in high school, in addition to Playing in the band, I also um, built a go-kart with my father. My dad and I built it together. We made it out of wood, but it used a Briggs & Stratton a lawnmower engine on it. And I used to drive the go-kart up and down the alley behind the house. And um, I did all the work on it. And I got good at, you know, making it making it work. It was basically built out of uh, used lawnmower parts, bearings and shafts and stuff like that. And in high school, I got interested in cars, and I uh, I bought a 1950 Mercury convertible body from this girl that I met who had, who had a boyfriend that was going to rebuild the car and had pulled the engine out of it, but it didn't. He Something happened. He wasn't there anymore, and she wanted to sell it, so I bought it for $50. It was... Uh, Nineteen thing was huge. It weighed like six thousand pounds, and uh, but it was a mercury convertible. And um, my friend and I went to the junkyard and found a fifty nineteen fifty mercury in the junkyard, and we pulled the engine out of it using a uh, a tractor that happened to be at the junkyard, and we pulled the engine out of it and put it in a truck and brought it home and I rebuilt the engine and put it in the mercury really yeah and um I got everything to work except I couldn't figure out the electrical system so in those days in order to get your car worked on all the mechanics were at the local gasoline station so the gas stations had a mechanic and that's where you went to get your car fixed yeah so uh, I knew this mechanic. At the, we used to go to a Humble uh, station, or, what was pre-Exxon, before Exxon it was called Humble. And uh, there was a, a station down there. And uh, I went down there, and I knew this guy. His name was Bob Wright. And I asked him if he would wire up this car for me that I'd put together, and he did. He wired it up, and it worked. We turned it on, and it would actually start. And I actually got it where I could drive it around. I drove it to school, and it was my first car. So I decided when, uh, after doing that that I wanted to be a mechanical engineer because I enjoyed cars so much that 
I think I thought it would be an ME. Right. And I was also doing sound systems. Now, I thought about being a double E, but I thought, no, I, I really want to be a mechanical engineer. I, I mean, like, were you famous around your people at this point, or was this just what all the kids were doing? Because uh, this seems a little out there, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say I was famous, but... Um, Pretty well-known? Well, no, I don't know about that. I mean, I was just an average kid, I would say. Um, Lots of kids were doing this. These were the tools <laughs> of your time. I mean, is this the well, video games of your era because it was so drab and boring that this is what you did? Um, well, a lot of people worked on cars. You know, cars were easy to work on back then because yeah. they weren't, you know, a, a V8 in the Mercury the engine that I rebuilt for the for the Mercury convertible was called a flathead uh, design, and it was a very simple. It was really like the lawnmower engine that I had on the go kart, except it had eight cylinders instead of one. But Great. the basic design of the of valves and all that stuff were the same. So it was pretty. It was just a, and the carburetor was simpler and. So it, just, there, it was just, it wasn't complicated. There, there's a theme there that we're going to talk about more when we come back with the mix with Matt and Dan. We're going to take a small break. Why don't you guys listen to my daughter practice her guitar for a couple minutes? We'll be back. Dan. Today I'm interviewing Rusty Bruchet, my father. Uh, we are talking about his illustrious career. Uh, right uh, when we jumped off before the break, we were diving into um, his exceptional childhood and having reflected on a couple things since uh, you told me those stories, I'm not so convinced you were not famous within the people <laughs> that you knew. Um, I, don't, I don't really think about being famous but I I, um, I was certainly uh, industrious and I was always busy yeah I didn't and like to hang out very much I, I was always doing something but see from a bigger picture that's more relevant to my life in the way I see it is you know entrepreneurism it may have been big back then but it's on fire now and it's coupled by the backbone of information and the internet and seeing so many of these people who were in a yeah. garage become billionaires and all of this kind of hype around it. And a lot of the patterns that are coming out in entrepreneurism and innovation is the idea of iteration, right? Yeah. And taking a lot of things, I, I make stupid, bold claims sometimes. And one of those is as working on the internet 20 hours a day and doing search engine optimization and digital marketing like my business, I see that information folds, right? And right. typically what I mean by that is that you're typically one of the ways that information moves forward, and this has been documented by other people as well, um, where good ideas come from, I think Stephen Johnson or Jackson or somebody wrote about it, um, is that ideas are like two things that are not in the same world coming together to create this new thing really is a good way to innovate, right? It's a yes. good way to move things forward. That's right. And so if you were naturally as a child going through and doing 94 things, we didn't even touch on all the things you did. You were a cheerleader right. at the time. You threw discus right. at the time. You built your own car. Right. And this was all before college. Right. I was 16 when I got the okay. car running. I mean, I don't want to label you a savant, but I, I, I would say that you are energized and yeah. you're one of those kids that's not like the others. Probably not. And uh, I was always uh, a self-teacher. You know, I, I was always uh, able to, 
dive into something and one way or another kind of find the information I needed to kind of get get going and make it work. Right. And I did that with the car. I just to kind of I just I had been working on the lawnmower engine, so when I got the bigger one, the V8, I just dived into it and took it apart and figured out how it worked. And it was simple enough in those days that I could do that. I don't. You probably couldn't do that now because it's so complicated and everything's electronically driven and processor controlled that you know you so it's much harder to do. But you, a lot you can of, do uh, it with other things. It's yeah. not as like cars are harder. Yeah. Right, you can buy classic cars and go way yeah, back, but there's true. other technologies now that you can mess with. Yeah, um, but you have to have. This is kind of where the education system lags, right? If you can self-educate, there's never been more. That's the trait that matters. Right, is the ability to self-educate. Right, and now but, it's easier because of the internet. You can just go Google. You can it. learn anything. Yeah, right, and you can learn any skill. You can learn any tool. So yeah. you can have master craftsmen yeah. teach you how to swing a hammer. Yeah, and you can get there much faster. You might have even gotten lost in today's age because of so much opportunity to yeah. self-educate. Well, you have to kind of find uh, what you like to do, and I was always real passionate about whatever I got into. So uh, I was really most passionate about music and audio, but I was also uh, passionate about cars, and I loved uh, I loved mechanical things. I loved taking stuff apart, putting it back together again, that type of thing. So all of that, you're 17, 18, you're driving around this car yeah. that you built, right? Yeah. And people are like, oh, yeah, where'd you get that? And you got a story there. So you get yeah. a little hype and a little kudos for the work you've done. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to have stories to tell about your life, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you're going through this whole thing, and then you are going to decide that. You, so now the backbone of why you want to be a mechanical engineer is a little bit more clear. Right. It wasn't like your father was standing over you saying, no. you need to be an engineer. You need to no. be a lawyer. This was like sourced from your life, like the yeah, things you were interested what I want, in. I always knew I wanted to be an engineer. So right. when it, there was never any doubt about that. So when I went to SMU, I enrolled in engineering school. And I remember the first day we got there, we had an orientation. And the guy got up in front of us, and there was a bunch of us in the in the group in the freshman class there. And he said, well, you know, about 80% of you guys won't make it past the first year in engineering school. Uh, only about 20% of you will become engineers because most of, most of you will go off and do other things. And I remember sitting there looking and thinking, and I said, well, that that's not going to be me. I'm going to be an engineer, no question about it in my mind. And so... Turned out he was right. Most guys went to business school. In retrospect, I kind of wish I had gone to business school. Right. I didn't give it near enough respect at the time that, that, I, that I learned about later. But you're, uh, you're not the only engineer who has done that. <laughs> but I, uh, I was committed, and I never, I never wavered. I just chugged right through it. And uh, it took me five years to get through because SMU had a, a what they call a co-op program where you went to school 12 months a year, but you worked in industry uh, for two or three months period. So you'd go to school and then you'd have a, like a three month semester where you'd work and then you go back to school for a semester and then you go back to work. And so I went to work at Dresser Industries, which was an oil field um, supply company that made drilling bits, oil field drilling bits. And um, that was probably one of the most um, momentous decisions I made to go to work there because I met a man named George Kaysen, who was uh, the head of the engineering department at Dresser, and he was uh, an electric. He was in a, he was a mechanical engineer, but he was uh, a ham opera, ham radio operator. He did it as a hobby. Yeah, there's still and a massive was, amount of people who do that. Yeah. yeah, and he was an expert in vacuum tubes. Okay. And he was a really great elect electrical engineer as well as mechanical engineer, and he taught me a lot about audio. And he built a an amplifier mixer for one of my uh, subsequent sound systems. And So he got uh, he, involved. Yeah, he became a really great friend, and a real mentor. He's probably the most powerful mentor that I had in my life. And w why? Um, well, my father had died um, in 1968. Okay. RC. How did he pass? He, uh, he, he had a lung disease, and he was in the hospital for 
about five years before he passed. And um, he, uh, so George kind of was, um, he, he was an important figure in my life at that time just because of what I was going through. Right, somebody to confide in and kind of help you out and give you some mentorship. Yeah, and, he was yeah. just a, a really good guy. And I learned a lot from him. We were we became lifelong friends, and uh, he he lived a, a nice long life. He was he was a World War II veteran. He'd been in Europe, yeah, as a army infantry infantry man, and received a Purple Heart. And he was just a classic World War II generation guy. Absolutely brilliant person, and probably the best one of the best engineers I ever I ever saw. He was just extraordinarily yeah. great. And in the sense that he could like work problems out in his head, or he yeah, could he was he, he was just incredibly creative, and just he just uh, just had he could just make things work. You know, right. he's one of those guys that could design something and it just worked. Yeah, and you know it's hard to do. It's one of the things about engineering is that you can sit there and design something all day long, and then try to make it work, and it doesn't work. You know? Right, and it, it's it's. It's hard to find people that can that that can really design things and and make them work well. And that, yeah. that he was one of those extraordinary people. He was also quite broad in his ability because he not only was great at mechanics, but he was great in electronics of the day. Right. And he 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 early on started computer programming. He uh, he wrote his own computer programs for a lot of his. He designed a lot of the machines that made the drill bits. And he, uh, he he actually did a lot of early computer work, which was way he was way ahead of his time of that because this is still in the '60s. Right. Uh, I worked there from 1964 to 1968. Okay. And what did you do for them? Um, well, I was a, I was in the engineering department and in those days. I, I did mostly uh, drafting. Uh, I, I would do drawings of things, and I also would do experiments in uh, the engineering lab on various lubricants and ideas to make drill bits last longer. Right. You know, the, the drilling bit um, for oil field uh, drilling is really hasn't changed a whole lot since it was first invented. Right. It was invented by the Hughes Tool Company. And when the, when the patents ran out, Dresser started up their own drilling bit business, and that's what this group was that I was with. And... Um, it, it was uh, quite an interesting challenge to figure out how to make a drill bit withstand the environment of drilling down into the earth and lasting long enough to, to you know, to make it worthwhile because it was such a huge deal to replace the bit because you had to pull the drilling pipe out of the hole. Yeah, several thousand feet yeah, or whatever it is, right? put a new bit on there. So, yeah, you know, yeah. A bit that would last longer than the other bit, was a, it was a yeah. big deal. So, that, our goal was to figure out how to make drilling bits last longer. And, you know? and did your genius contribute to this world at all? Or <laughs> no, I, I, I was just a, I was just a kid. You know? Yeah, you're just sitting there looking yeah, at the just, cool stuff. I was right. just putting mud in the in the hopper and running the test on the bearings. So you stuff. were there for labor. I was there for labor. Yeah. Right. I got it. I got it. So uh, so that's 1968. How old were you? Well, let's see. I graduated from SMU uh, in 1968. So I was, uh, I was uh, 23. Okay, so you were going through school, you were playing music, and you were working a job. Yeah. Right, and socializing and doing all these things. Yeah. And so it makes sense that you wouldn't have a lot of time to sit there and pontificate uh, and write music. No, and that just, we, none of us were talented that way. Right. We, we basically were what they now call cover bands. We just played the songs of the day. And um, and and we would play parties where people basically just wanted a band that would play. Yeah, because maybe their home sound. Like nowadays, that market, instead of having to like source a band, is probably taken care of with your home audio system. Yeah. Right. Because now you got the mix, you get better music, it's yeah. better quality. Instead of having some smelly yeah. teenagers roll in with all their stuff and setting up on the patio. Yeah, I mean there there are bands nowadays that that's. Uh, specialize in, you know, like there's Beatle cover bands or there's 1980 music cover bands and stuff. That, I mean, am you know, I thinking about this the right way? Was this like babysitting for the guys? 
Like, the girls could babysit and make a little money, but the guys, oh, we'll have Rusty over and he'll play in his band and we'll give him 50 bucks. <laughs> no, we, we played for specific events. We would play for a fraternity party or there were a lot of uh, social clubs in Dallas. Yeah. And they would have their various parties. They were very, very formal dances and stuff. Right. And we would play for that. But we would go to UT and play for fraternities down there, or we would go and play parties in other cities. So we, we would actually travel around Texas. Okay, and you'd play a gig, places. a fraternity would actually have a little money, and they'd pay you. Yeah, we'd get paid, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, we also played, there was a nightclub called Luann's uh, over on Greenville Avenue. We used to play over there. Uh, and there was a, a, a nightclub called Soul City, Yeah. and we occasionally would play there, too. Okay. And I built the sound system for Soul City and put it in. Okay. And, permanent uh, or? Yeah, it was a permanent installation. How much did you make doing that? I don't remember how much I made. But he paid you. I got, I got paid for it. And yeah. so did you understand that you needed, like, did you undersell that because you thought it was so awesome? or? Uh, I probably did undersell it. And, um, it, you know, one of the guys in the in my band, Jack Calmes, was a, a partner with another guy that opened the club. And so I was involved with it because... I knew them well, and I also would operate the system at night. But it was great because a lot of really famous people went through Soul City in that period of time. As Ike and Tina Turner played there all the time, and Kenny Rogers, and, and as he began his career, used to play there. Um, the organ player Jimmy Smith would play there. Um, so it, it was great to to see professional musicians up close like that. Stevie right. Wonder came through. One time, I remember being really impressed with his bass player. All playing through your sound system you yeah. made? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. And did you get any feedback from any famous people? Yeah, the they loved it. In fact, there was a, a club owner in Bossier City named Merle Kimmerly that came and heard it and liked it so much that he hired me to come and put one in his club in Bossier so City. So you were a traveling sound guy so installing. I was a traveling sound guy. So I went to Bossier City. George Kaysen, my friend, helped me, and we installed a sound system down in Bossier City in the Whiskey a go-go. What about support, telephone support? What are they doing when this thing breaks? Um, you know, I don't know what... Merle had a, a sound guy, and uh, I, I assume that after I installed it, he kept it running. But why would the sound guy not be the guy? Like, what makes I you know. different? Well, I just had the... I had it put together in a way that was unusual, I think, and it just sounded good. And was that like kind of sourced from the idea that you were traveling, so maybe your stuff was a little bit more robust? Or no, and it was because he'd heard it in Dallas and liked it. No, it. but I mean, like you were going around setting up gigs using your own sound system. I was, and so you were building things that were more practical because you maybe had to transport the sound yeah. system with you. I think that's probably right. I also was pretty good at making things sound good. I don't know why, but I always was able to. Put stuff together that sounded good. Right. And so um, this particular sound system that I was using in those in that period was two or four Altec A7s with these Dyna 60 watt power amps, tube amps, and then the Altec mixers. And that combination of equipment just sounded good. Yeah, but from the a, time from a personality point of view, don't you think that? Maybe it could have been that you have uh, a little bit of a s obsession on stuff, and when it doesn't yeah. sound good, you have this capability to yeah. rip it apart and fix it. Yeah, I was definitely obsessed, and I definitely worked at it. Yeah, because a lot uh, of people are like, oh, that doesn't sound good. We'll just turn it down, or, you know. Yeah. Like, they don't actually think, I've realized this, like, going out into the world and talking to other people, is that most people don't think, oh, I'm going to rip this apart and rebuild it from the ground up. Right. Or I'm going to spend 12 hours researching exactly why this is broken yeah. and then going to fix it. And that's a personality trait that you have. It is. I also um, had a motto that I was always, everybody always accused me of, but I always believed in. And that was that I believe that anything worth doing is worth overdoing. <laughs> so I always went for the maximum I could yeah. go for. But that uh, translated to all parts of your life. That yeah. was like you buy one can of spaghetti, you might as well buy five cans yeah, of spaghetti. Yeah, that way you only have to go to the store no, one-fifth of the time. As the uh, as a, a child of you, I yeah. have 
this is a genetic thing that has been passed along and yeah. has been beaten out of me by my wife, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, well, you end up having to have a lot of storage. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And then if you don't eat them fast enough, they go bad. So that's right. There's a few downsides to the theory, but yeah, I got it. If, if you uh, if you eat lots of spaghetti, then but it's my a good point idea. is is that this is not something you turned on and off. Like this is no. a uh, core characteristic trait of it you. is. Right. I, I always just thought I, I always wanted to push it as far as I could. Right, and build something really robust. Yeah, yeah, and I want it to work. Yeah, and going back to when you were like traveling in your band, how many people did you ever play for? Was like what was the biggest crowd size? Um, probably uh, I don't know, maybe. Two or three hundred, four hundred people, maybe. Right. Pretty. I mean, that's not. Yeah. You know. I mean, we played big parties. Yeah. And we had regular customers that would hire us over and over again. And. Right. Uh, I also handled all the bookings and kept up with all that and collected all the money. And, right. Um, paid for everything, and I bought. Uh, you know, as the as the band progressed on, we as a group would buy the sound system, and I would divvy it up and charge each guy his share, that sort of thing. Okay. But it uh, it worked well, and it, and it um, it was something that um, gave me a lot of experience in uh, you know hauling it around because we also had a truck, a van that we carried all of our equipment in, and I, I drove the van and set the equipment up because all the guys in the band would pay me five dollars each extra per to, gig and to for do that, the work for that twenty bucks I would load the gear up and set it up and tear it down because it's another 20 bucks. A true hustler. A we're going to talk, talk more with Rusty Bruchet when we come back. You're listening to The Mix with Matt and Dan. Yeah. Why don't you guys take a minute and listen to my son practice his drums. Okay. Welcome back to The Mix with Matt and Dan. Uh, today we're interviewing Rusty Bruchet. Uh, you know, we talked about a truck that you had um, where you were getting paid and making a little bit of money, becoming one of the OG hustlers, right? right. Kind of finding ways to make money uh, along the way and stay motivated. That's right. And it also, you know, um, taught me all about moving equipment, you know, lifting it and, and packing it into a truck and making it hold up. Yeah. Uh, and thinking about those sort of things, which would later on become very important. And um, I, about this time, this was uh, while I was at SMU, which was between 1963 and 68, was when we had our largest band. We had uh, about a seven-piece band. We had a horn section. Okay. We were this playing. was the DeVilles? We, we had moved on from the DeVilles. We were now called the Soul Society. Soul Society. And we uh, had a horn section and a Hammond organ, and we played... The rhythm and blues of the day, you know, Did you Otis, guys have Otis matching, Redding and Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Matching outfits or anything? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We had our matching outfits, had little suits we had made. Did you have, have sequence dance steps? Um, well, we none of us were particularly coordinated, but we did try to move around and look good. Uh-huh. And we wore, uh, you know, beetle boots. We were real excited when, when the mm-hmm. Beatles came and they had those little pointy high, high heel boots. We've all bought some of those. How do you and, get uh, back in what nineteen sixty seven eight here? Yeah, How do you man. find a beetle boot that fits you? <laughs> I don't remember. It was I'm sure it was some sort of custom thing, probably out of New York or some place where they had had big sizes. But we uh, we had that, and we um, we decided about that time we would try to cut a record. Uh, we didn't really have a lot of original material. We had a couple of songs we'd written, but. We were basically doing well, covers. What was you know? the name of one of the songs you'd written? Um, I can't remember. They were really forgettable. You know? <laughs> right. Do you yeah. remember any of the no, lyrics? No. Nothing. They were awful. But uh, we did do a cover of uh, uh, Knock on Wood. It's okay. one, of our, one of our big tons. 
So we went to this recording studio in Fort Worth, and I met an engineer, the guy that owned the studio was a guy named Jack Maxson. Yeah. And um, I immediately connected with him because he was a bigger audio freak than I was. And he had built this studio in Fort Worth all by himself and hand-wired the whole thing and everything himself. And it was just a complete order and magnitude up from what I was doing. Just completely. But isn't you guys world. pretty parallel in age, or was he a little older? He's a little older. He's about four or five years older than I was. Okay. Just one generation in front of you. Yeah, about a half a generation, but okay. pretty yeah. close. Yeah. And he, uh, he absolutely loved audio, too. Uh, more than I did, I think, even. And uh, we just became friends, and I started uh, working a little bit at his studio. He was starting to teach me how to do some stuff because I wanted to learn about recording because recording was a different world than sound systems because yep. you were it's a different thing. And it was a, you had a four-track studio, which you had an Ampeg tape recorder, and it had four separate tracks. And that's So whenever you recorded something... Uh, you could record it on four separate tracks. Nowadays, you could have as many tracks as you want, but back then, a four-track studio in that time period, which was about 1966, 67, was pretty much state-of-the-art. And um, I just was... And so we started working together uh, on my sound system design, too. And uh, as as... We got to about 1968, 69. Um, we started getting a call from a local promoter, a guy named Terry Bassett, who was with a company called Concerts West. And this was a promotion company that had originated in Seattle, Washington. And they had opened an office in Dallas. And they were promoting rock shows in various... And when you promote a rock... <clears throat> explain to me what promoting a rock show means. Like... Well, in 1967, what it meant was is they would go to a band like Credence Clearwater Revival or someone like that, and they would strike a deal to, for a set amount of money for the Credence Clearwater to come play a show. So they might agree on a $25,000 fee. So then the promoter would go, and they would find a venue, and they would rent the venue, and then they would pay all the expenses to set the show up and to pay all the stagehand bills to get everything going, and they would take the risk of selling the tickets. They would have to promote the show by the radio time, figure out how to best promote it, and if the, nobody came, the promoter would lose all the money. The band would get their twenty-five grand. Well, as Concerts West got going and as rock and roll started to take off, this became an incredible money maker because... As these bands got bigger, like Credence, they was they would sell out every show, no problem. And so, Concerts West became very, very successful. Right. And as time went on, they would promote the biggest artists in the world. But they they opened up in Dallas, and the big problem was when it first started, as they moved out of small venues into large venues, there was no sound equipment to do the gig. Right. And they couldn't get they couldn't play these big shows without having some way to get sound loud enough for the audience to hear the, the so artist. So this brings up a really uh, a point that I've always thought about and you know wanted to kind of talk to you about you know the early bands, you know, like the ones that you kind of see on the stage with a simple microphone, they were really unbelievably talented, right? I mean, yeah. to be able to go through a crappy speaker system that they had at the time and be able to deliver value to the audience was no small feat. That's right. right. So, like, you could almost say that that era of musician was just insanely... Was it the type of music that they were singing that just worked better in that environment, or was it something that they just had so much talent that it's kind of hard to deny that? Well, the very first shows that were in large venues were done by artists like Elvis and the Beatles, who were already huge and were strong performers and very magnetic personalities on their own. So even though they would go and they, you know, in those big, like the Beatles at Shea Stadium and those type of early shows, 
the audience really couldn't hear a single note because <laughs> the sound systems were so small that it was just literally hopeless. Really? So it was just more of an emotional, you know, the girls were screaming the whole time through, and it was just more of a uh, an emotional event than a musical event because there wasn't any real music that anyone could hear. All right, so the listeners heard it here first, yeah. right? Nobody heard a single note. That's right, back. not one note. <laughs> Right. Because there's no way you could do it with 60 or however many people there were at Shea Stadium. It's a physics problem, folks, yeah. right? Like, they were there. There was a lot That's of culture right. going on. A lot of culture. A lot of people claiming that they were there. There's no quality, right? <laughs> they were there for the screaming. That's right. They were there for the emotional Which at the time, experience. coming out of the 50s, coming out of the 60s, yeah. was probably a thing to see. Yeah, well, the Beatles, you know, came on the scene in 1964. Right. So by the time they played that show in... New York Shea Stadium was probably 1965. I think I don't remember the exact date of it, but it was early on. Yeah. So what Concerts West, when they started up in Seattle, it was actually started by a guy named Pat O'Day, who was a disc jockey at a at a uh, radio station in Seattle, who whose early focus was on top 40 radio by playing the top 40 hits of the day, and he started doing dances on the weekends because he could promote the dances through his radio show and he, he built up this huge business of doing these teenage sock hops dances and um how many how many people would go to a sock hop oh there would be maybe 500 or so it was it would be in a fairly small venue but you'd pay to go you pay to go it was actually a money-making deal and there was artists there was local bands up in the seattle area that actually became famous for playing these stock, uh, sock hops, teenage dances and stuff. And so as the, as the business started to develop and the bands became bigger, like the Beach Boys came on the scene, this Pat O'Day realized that they could play bigger venues and get a bigger crowd, but they had no way to do sound. And so when the, Terry Bassett came to Dallas and they opened their office in Dallas, Bassett started and heard about the sound system we had in this band, you know, the Soul Society, and so he started renting that sound system for some of the shows. So you just got a call from him one day. Yeah, just got a call, can you do it? And so I said, sure. I went over there. And, and how and did the, he find you? Because he had connections? or um, He found us. I don't know how he found well, us. Well, we now, you know, the, this relic called the White Pages. Do you think he used the White Pages? No. No, he... he uh, I don't know how you knew. Right? The white pages were residential phone yeah. numbers based yeah. on address and phone yeah. number. Yeah. No, I don't think he did that. He probably asked around or something. I don't know how he, how he found out. But uh, the, fir you, you, the, and the first gigs they were doing were, were auditoriums of like 2,000 people. And, and did he call you at, were you living with Nanya at the time? He actually called uh, Jack Kalmys, who was the guitar player and the, yeah. and the, uh, he may have done it through Soul City. He, it may have come from the Soul City sound system that we did. Maybe that's how it came up. I don't remember. But one of the first gigs we did was in the McFarland Auditorium. Yeah. Which was a, on the SMU campus, and it was a theater there, a classic proscenium theater, maybe 2,000 seats. Okay. And so I just took the sound system there and set it up, and... Um, Maxon was working with me by that time. We'd become friends, and so we, we both went but down there and did it together. Hold on. You had a sound system. You'd been playing venues. You had not been playing 2,000-person no. venues. So I had to add to it. Yeah, so you had to go. So I had to borrow amplifiers from people, and I went and rented more A7 yeah. speakers. and To fill a 2,000-person venue. Yeah. And how many cycles did that take to get it right? I mean, did you just... Well, we never, it, it never sounded that great. It was always, you know... Yeah. Not so good. As good as you can get. Yeah. But another thing that was going on then is that uh, Jack Calmes and Angus Wynn, his partner in, uh, in the uh, Soul City venture, um, started promoting shows on Texas OU Weekend. They would rent Market Hall, which was a big industrial uh, facility that had been used for conventions and stuff. It was kind of basically a big convention hall. Yeah. And they would sell tickets for $10 a piece to all the kids coming up here for the Texas OU weekend. And they'd have beer and stuff. And they would have bands like, there was a real famous band, 
uh, called the Hot Nuts that played sort of off-color songs and stuff, and they were perfect for that kind of thing. And so they would sell two or three thousand tickets. There'd be two or three thousand kids in there, and I was doing the sound for it. Right. And so I would I would go rent every Altec A7 that I could find in town. There was a local Altec dealer, and I'd rent all the ones they had, and I would string these speakers up along the wall, and I would go borrow power amplifiers from people and from their stereos at home and stuff, and uh, I would do this do the gig. Yeah. And one of the uh, one bands that came through was the Beach Boys one year, and they they brought their own sound system, and it used... It was, and they brought their own recording engineer who was, who was acting as their live sound engineer at the time. And he had this really nice mixing console that he had built that was a studio console. And, and he had these speakers that were made using James B. Lansing speakers, JBL speakers. Now, I'd never heard of them before. And they just sounded unbelievable. I mean, they were so much better than all the stuff I had. I just couldn't get over it. And yeah. They were like a third the size. So I, I made up my mind after that show. I said, "Boy, if I ever, if I ever am able to, I'm going to use some JBL speakers." You know. Yeah. And so uh, after we did the the shows in McFarland Auditorium, um, after we did a couple of them, Maxon and I decided we would, and Calmes, Jack, Calmes, and Jack Maxon and myself decided we would go into the sound business, and. Um, that actually, I guess I should back up because about this time we were doing these shows, Woodstock came along, which was 1969. Yeah. And there was a, a sound company up, up east that was called Hanley Sound. It was run by a guy named Bill Hanley. And he was the first guy to put together really giant sound systems. He used all Altec Lansing um, parts, Altec, same stuff I was using, but... Altec also had really big speakers that they used for big uh, yeah. installations. So, so Bill Hanley put together really big sound but systems. Why would Concerts West come to you rather than go to him? Because he was up in New York. Right. So he just and they were in Dallas. Okay. So there's just no market in Dallas. No. Nobody was doing it. No. Uh, you were doing it at the level and then kind of yeah. at the front of the market, yeah. the wave hitting the market. Yeah. And so if you had passed, somebody else would have come in behind you and filled in because the demand was there. The demand was there, so it would have been filled somehow. Right. So after Woodstock, um, Jack Calmes and Angus Wynn decided they would promote a festival in Dallas called the, Inter the Texas International Pop Festival which was 1969, September. And so they did that, and they hired Bill Hanley to do the sound. And so Hanley came and did the sound for the Texas International Pop Festival. And that was the first time I'd ever seen him. Uh, the first, that was the first time I'd ever seen a sound system that big. Right. And he, he built scaffolding that was like 40, 50 feet in the air out of you know normal yeah. construction scaffolding. And he put all the speakers up on the scaffolding. Right. And he had giant Macintosh power amplifiers. They, and Macintosh made a 350-watt tube amplifier. At the time, it was extremely expensive, and he had 15 of them. And he, had, he built a little room in the scaffolding by wrapping plastic wrap, visqueen, around the scaffolding and made this room and used window air conditioners to try to cool it because 15 of these 350-watt Macintosh amplifiers was putting off enormous amounts of heat. Right. And this was in September in Texas, so it was hot. Everything was overheating. So he was trying to cool these things, and I was just amazed. You know, the idea of 15 350-watt amps was, you know... Yeah, it, like, blew your it, mind. It blew my mind, even, but, you yeah. know, I was totally into it, you know. Yeah. And so there was one any, of those things I didn't know was possible, but I was for it. Yeah, you, you know? were you were in. You was, wanted to was, go bigger. I was in. Yeah. yeah. So after seeing that, I thought, you know, I think we can do that. I mean, I, I would once like one of those things when 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 you see it, you realize I can do that. You know. Yeah, and I but I think to give some context to people who are listening, like I'm kind of familiar with a lot of these things because I've seen it. You're talking about basically 
going into an open field, right? right that could house, you know, nowadays 100,000 people. Yeah. But there's nothing there. Nothing. Right? There's no infrastructure. There's no wiring to no. plug into. There's nothing. And so no. the idea of this, all of a sudden needing these things, and then kind of going, it's like going to this place and then forgetting that you needed something and then having to bring it. Yeah. And so it just creates this, oh, man, I've got to, you know, the energy of, like, creating that out of right. nothing kind of self-fulfills, right? Like it immediately builds its own thing. Um, I don't know if that makes sense right. or not, but it immediately, re- you realize all the parts that are missing right. with very, very much signal and clarity, right? Right, Because it's a very like, oh, wow, this thing is overheating. We have to build a massive air conditioner in the middle of September yeah. because there's nothing else around. That's right. Yeah, okay. And so um, what, what Woodstock... And these pop festivals did is that they ignited the whole concert touring thing because it, that's when it became obvious that these bands could become big and they could sell out big venues. Yeah. And the, the outdoor venues like Woodstock and all that, as you just pointed out, were extremely difficult venues to do because you had to create everything from scratch. You know, and it made it impractical from a money-making point of view to go there first. Yeah, so, so where they went was hockey arenas because they were all over the country, and they would they were fifteen to twenty thousand seats. Right, and, and they, they had, had enough seat. infrastructure there where you didn't have. You at least had a seats. building you could walk into and had air conditioning, but there was nothing else: no sound, yeah. no lights, nothing. And, and so, if you had not solve this problem technically or somebody along the way had not solved this problem technically then all the people who'd gone to that show in 1964 would have gotten tired of just going to the show to listen to each other scream right there had to been like more value delivery yeah and the bands and the people doing it if this was going to stick everybody was going to have to take it seriously yeah and i give bill hanley the credit for being the guy the father of that of that movement because he was the first one to put together a sound system big enough where that many people could actually hear the sound. Right. And so that was a huge watershed moment when you were able to actually go to the Shea Stadium gig and actually hear the music that was being, you know, there was 500,000 people at Woodstock. Right. And the sound system was, obviously, I'm sure the the back row of the 500,000 probably wasn't that great, (laughs) but it was pretty darn good for the majority of that audience. And at at the Texas Pop Festival, the sound was good, and there was like a hundred thousand people at that show. Right. So it 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 was really a watershed moment. And then when when the when they started doing arenas where they could where you had fifteen to twenty thousand people, then that was a that became a big business very rapidly. So after we did um, after I saw the Beach Boys at Market Hall with on the Texas OU weekend and and got the JBL idea in my mind. And after Max and I did a couple of gigs with Concerts West at Memorial Auto- or at, uh, at McFarland Auditorium and on SMU campus, we decided we would go into the sound business. And Calmees also wanted to do it. So the so three of us formed show. You saw a market, you had yeah. the people, you decided that you're gonna officially we're gonna go it. in and do yeah. this. So this so, is uh, the mix with Matt and Dan. And when we listen to our next episode, we're gonna dive in to that story and more. Yeah. And uh, we're going to get into the details of how you were at the right place at the right time and helped build some amazing companies that really helped the entertainment industry uh, get its message out. Uh, thanks Sounds for listening. Yep. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back. <laughs>